Hear the word of God from Isaiah and Matthew's Gospel. Isaiah 55, 1-3 Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me, listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful loved promised to David. Isaiah 61, 1-3 The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell all those who mourn in the time of the Lord that favor has come, and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. Matthew 5, 1-12 Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit for their kingdoms of the heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they are called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of their righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again, church family. So good to be able to dive into the word with all of you this morning. We're continuing in our series through the book of Matthew through the lens of the book of Isaiah. And what I mean by that is we're going through this book of Matthew together, but we're seeing it through the huge role the book of Isaiah had in understanding the book of Matthew. The key themes, the motifs, the, the base understandings, and so on. So we're kind of diving into both Matthew and Isaiah, mainly Matthew, but using Isaiah at the same time as we're understanding it. Some people call Isaiah the fifth gospel, and Matthew in turn based so much of what he wrote on understanding of the book of Isaiah. Today we're starting in the kind of like the whole semester we're in the we're in the book of Matthew and Isaiah, but today for a little short mini series, we're actually in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to spend the next few weeks there on the Sermon on the Mount. And this is the first great message given by Jesus, recorded for us by Matthew. Today we'll be mainly focusing on kind of the intro to this Sermon on the Mount and the first 12 verses from Matthew 5. These verses are commonly referred to as the Beatitudes. They form part of what is commonly referred to as, once again, the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew 5 through 7. And the beginning of Matthew 5 referred to as the Beatitudes for these are the words uh, Jesus spoke when he pronounced a blessing upon the children of his kingdom. We call this passage Beatitudes because it comes from the Latin Beatisunt, which, which means blessed are. So Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, the meek. And the sermon begins with the gospel, not the law. Jesus pronounced blessings, not issuing orders. Each Beatitude begins with the word makarios, which means blessed. We're happy. 
He speaks of those who are such persons. He does not command listeners to become such persons. And he says, how blessed by God are such people. This provides a vital foundation for the rest of his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount about law-keeping. His foundation was the gifts of love come before the demands of love. I want you to get that. Don't, Don't miss that. This gifting, this pronouncement of blessing came before the pronouncement of what the law actually means. That shows the order of the gospel. And this is comfort to those who seek it and need it. It is reminiscent of the book of Isaiah where comfort and hope seems to break into hard and difficult words of judgment. The Beatitudes are breaking in the culture and society of a time that was led by the Pharisees, that was speaking condemnation. Jesus begins his sermon on the kingdom by describing those who are the members of his kingdom and the blessedness that belongs to them. A blessedness that was exclusive, a blessedness that was resting upon them alone as a citizen of his kingdom. Now, these Beatitudes were given while Jesus was in Galilee during the first year and a half of his ministry. He was experiencing great popularity. People were gathering. They heard about, he just got through the temptation, and then he started performing miracles, and people, he was gathering a following. The people have flocked to hear him, and he sees, according to the first verse of chapter 5, there are multitudes all around him. So he resorts to a very unconventional manner of teaching. He ascends partway up a mountain slope. He sits down on this hill, He opens his mouth and he begins to teach the multitudes. The Son of God, whom the psalmist says in Psalm 45, that grace is poured into his lips. The Son of God teaches now the multitudes about the kingdom of his Father, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven that he inaugurates. And as he said, he begins it with these Beatitudes, this beautiful description of those who are members of his kingdom and the blessings that are theirs. Now, this great sermon has to do with the life of the kingdom. In the Sermon on the Mount, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord gives a picture of kingdom life, that is, life of those who are members of his kingdom. His rule has been established in the hearts, so they are now kingdom citizens, and in particular, the Beatitudes, which we are today, he discusses the character of those who are citizens. He's describing the character of the citizens of this kingdom. Now, it is important as we study this passage that we understand that this is not merely exalted ethical teachings, though it, it, it is that. The Jesus who stands before us to teach us the way of life and the way of holiness in the Sermon on the Mount is not merely a great teacher who says, oh, here's some good lessons to teach you. He's our Savior, our Redeemer. And at every point that he instructs us in the way of life, he continues to be the one who died for us, that we may enter into this way of life. Jesus is not telling us in the Sermon on the Mount the way that we can earn ourselves our way into favor. He's not saying in the Sermon on the Mount that if we do these things, we earn our way into favor. But he stands before us as Savior and Redeemer and Teacher. Now the term Sermon on the Mount comes to us from St. Augustine. He was the first one to call this sermon, this great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And for the past 1,600 years, Christians have been referring to this passage by this name. And I want to say simply before we read the dive more into this, that this is not just fancy religious ideal. It's not about an ideal life in an ideal world. It's not about there and then. It's about here and now. It's not about Christian living in an ideal life in an ideal world. It's about Christian living kingdom life in a fallen world. I don't want you to look at this and say, oh, this is an ideal situation that never will happen. I want you to look at this and say, this is what God's called kingdom citizens to look like even in this fallen world. And before we dive into this, though, I want to point and I make one huge and big connection that I don't want you to miss. And I know the original readers would have picked up on. Last week, we saw Jesus in the wilderness facing temptation. 
And one key point that I made from that sermon was that Jesus was standing in the place of Israel. He faced the same temptations that they faced, but he passed. He chose relationship. He chose trust in God. And so for Matthew, Jesus is now ushering in the new age. He is inaugurating his kingdom. In doing so, Jesus is standing in the role of Moses on the mountain. You see, the setting was intentional. Within Matthew's theology, Jesus is the new Moses. Just as Moses delivered God's law to the people at Mount Sinai, so Jesus goes into the mountainside to set forth God's instruction. Robert Gundry says this, Moreover, Matthew expressly says that Jesus sat down to teach, 5.1. This means more than that Jesus gained a comfortable position for prolonged teaching. Matthew 23.2, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Sitting in Moses' seat means rehearsing the, the Mosaic law. I believe that Matthew wants 5.1 to be read in light of 23.2. In other words, this sitting in Moses' seat literally means that Jesus is taking the place of Moses. He's ushering in the law of his new kingdom. Not something brand new that wipes away the old, but something that clarifies and fulfills the old law. Dr. Knox Chamberlain says this, A sermon is Jesus' instructions about life in the community of the kingdom of God now being inaugurated. As Moses delivered the Torah to Israel to prepare them for life in the land, so now Jesus, the new Moses, expounds the word of God to show the people of God newly constituted around his own person how to live. There's an intentional connection that Matthew is making. See, on the mountainside, after this experience in the mountain, after he experienced temptation, that Jesus is the new Moses saying, hey, new people, as we're going to the new land, here's the Torah, here's the law, how we're supposed to live in this new land. And here's Jesus saying, hey, my people who are experiencing the new kingdom, here's how you're called to live in the new kingdom. Do you see that? It's this beautiful connection that Matthew and the original readers would not have missed and I want you to get. That this is a continuation. This is not a, a, just something that came out of nowhere. This is a beautiful continuation of God's covenant work and his covenant promises. And Jesus is fulfilling the law in a way for us to understand and showing us how to live as citizens of this new kingdom in the land. So let's look at the Beatitudes. I believe the Beatitudes ask us two fundamental questions. One, what does it mean to be blessed? And two, who is the one who is blessed? The Beatitudes first forced us to ask the question, what does it mean to be blessed? Now, everyone asks that question, whether a person considers himself religious or not. Everyone asks the question, what does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be truly happy? And we'll get some interesting answers to that. I decided to get my answer from the best source I know of all, social media. So I took a quick look into the hashtag blessed on Instagram and Facebook. You know, did some research. Here's what I found. First of all, there were over 131 million posts recently with that hashtag on Instagram. 131 million. I don't know if that's a high number, but it feels like it is. I didn't see them all, but here's what I did see. I saw nice sneakers, new vehicles, people celebrating birthdays, some sweet family pictures, some scripture verses, and very fit, fashionable people, and lots and lots of food. On Facebook, it was actually different for me. I think it, maybe it's because it shows like people you're connected to more on Facebook or your friend, I don't know. But it was very different. On Facebook, I saw mainly stories, really like over and over again, of people's health recovery stories. Had cancer, was injured, survived a car accident. That's why I saw over and over again under hashtag blessed. So in other words, on Facebook, blessed seems to mean healthy, having good health or restored health. So after my quick study on blessed, 
from the internet, Instagram and Facebook, the best sources of information there is out there. Not being serious, by the way, just in case. I feel like I had to throw that caveat. I feel like most of you knew I wasn't being serious, but just in case. It seems to me that blessed means being healthy after being sick, being fit and fashionable, having nice material things like sneakers and cars, having friends and food. That seems to be the answer. So that's my source. That's my research that I did for you guys on what it means to be hashtag blessed. What does Jesus say about being blessed? Jesus is flipping the world's idea of what blessed is. He's turning everything upside down in his kingdom. Jesus is saying that the things that the world thought as being blessed is, all about, is what it's all about. is so far from the truth. In fact, he shocks us when he says that the one who is truly blessed is the one who has right relationship with God. That's what's going on in the Beatitudes. He's summing it up. The first four parts of the Beatitudes is about relationship with God, and the next part is about relationship with people. But in the first four parts, in that part, he's saying it doesn't matter your circumstances when you consider yourself poor in spirit. You're blessed because yours is the kingdom of God. So the Lord begins his blessings by reminding us of what true blessedness is, right relationship with God and enjoyment of him. That's true happiness. That's blessedness. No matter how wretched the world thinks Christ's disciples are, he says you're blessed if you're in fellowship, if you're in relationship, if you're known, and if you're loved, and if you're called to purpose. You're blessed. And the second question the Beatitudes asks and answers, who is the one who is blessed? And we all ask those questions, not only what does it mean to be blessed, but who exactly is blessed? And maybe we've already suggested the answer earlier, well, we might think those who are wealthy are blessed, those who are carefree, optimistic, lighthearted, they're blessed. The self-confident, the successful, they're blessed. But again, the Lord comes to us with a shocking response. He says, they're not the ones who are blessed. The ones who are blessed are those who are humble and penitent, who grieve over sin, who are meek, who are gentle. They're the ones who are blessed. My friends, these words are just as radical, in fact. These words are radical then, and in fact, I think they're just as radical now as they were when Christ spoke them. For these standards of blessing are diametrically opposed to what the world holds up to us day by day. Self-importance, self-glorification, self-fulfillment, self-satisfaction, self-comfort. These are the things which seem to be blessedness for us today. And Christ comes to us and says, no, true blessedness comes with the loss of self, a self-denial. It comes from a right understanding and a right relationship with God. And so we see the Beatitudes before us and we look at them. And for just a moment, guys, here's what I want you to do. And this is going to be hard for you and it's hard for me. But I want to take some time of self-examination. I want you to ask yourself, on what is your heart set? What is vital for your life? If you could list eight qualities when no one was looking, eight qualities of character that you would have worked on in your heart, what would they be? Would they be the beatitude set before you? What eight things do you want to see most developed in your life when no one's looking? Maybe let me put it this way. Have you known what it is to be blessed, to be truly blessed, to be truly happy, to be truly satisfied? Or are you still seeking that blessing and satisfaction through being fit and fashionable and sneakers? And having health. I had a conversation, and I'm not trying to throw my mom under the bus. I love my mom to death. She's awesome. She's a godly woman. But this conversation with my mom, she literally was like, you know, all that other stuff is not important. Money, health, it's not important. What's most important is your health. You know, you got to take care of yourself. 
And I love my mom to death. I understand what she was getting at. She's a caring, loving mom. I get that totally. I'm not trying to say anything negative about my mom. But I just, in that moment, as I'm working on this sermon, it was just bad timing for her. <laughs> and I said, Mom, that's not what's important. <laughs> my people, here's the problem. We think it is. If we evaluate our heart in the midst of, in the dark and in the quiet places, when we look down to our hearts, we think, okay, what will really make me happy, what will really make me feel blessed is if I just had enough money that I'm carefree. No more stress. Or if we get down to it, if we just stop and we think, well, if I just was healthy all the time, or there was no pain, or no stress, or no worries. My people, that's not what blessedness is. What blessedness is, is when you give up yourself, your desire to control everything, when you give up your desire for self-glorification, your desire for self-comfort, self-need, self-reliance, and you say, I'm blessed because I trust utterly and completely in the sovereignty of a good, good father. I was joking with my son the other day, but I was, you know, kind of we were messing around, and he goes, Daddy, I want to be older. I want to grow up now. And I was like, dude, you don't know, man. It is so good. You got it so good. Don't grow up. You don't want that. Trust me. And here's what I think we're doing all the time. We're like, God, God, I want, I want it all. I want the responsibility. I just want more, more, more. And God's like, dude, do you not get it? You're my child. You got it good. And we throw it away. And he's saying blessedness is knowing that you're a child of God. Christ opens for us the way of blessedness and we see it in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Let's go into some of these really quickly. The poor in spirit. Here's the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. One of the things we see throughout scripture is those who have a humble heart, those who are lowly and know they are in need, those who know they are spiritually bankrupt outside of God, filling them up, they experience God in a unique and beautiful way. See, it's hard to be filled up with God when you're filled up with all your own self-sufficiency. It's hard to know God as a provider when you think you can do it all on your own. I think one of the ways to kind of grab a hold of it is almost to flip it upside down, but if you overlook Matthew 23 or look at the woes going back in the book of Isaiah, we see in the scripture, woe to you who think you have no need of God. Woe to you who refuse to become like children. Woe to you when you think you got this thing handled. It's the poor in spirit who are blessed because of them who say, God, help me, I can't. It's the weak and weary, the worn out who are blessed. This kingdom ethic flips our understanding of life upside down. We celebrate strength, but God says, no, it's not strength. It's not your fake strength that is. It's honest weakness that is blessed. Because honest weakness acknowledges that we're a child. It's, it's this idea of, of my son saying, oh, I can handle it, Dad. I'll cook my own dinner. And I love it. I love it when he tries. But Josiah will try to make his own dinner. And he has no idea what he's doing. He grabs a little step stool, grabs a pot, and then just throws some water in. He's like, this should turn into food. <laughs> right? And that's what we do. We grab the pot. And he says, food? No, no, it's not working? Oh, I'm so frustrated. And God's saying, no, no, quit relying on your own strength because it'll never lead to what you want it to. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Then he moves from the poor to blessed are those who mourn. Those who mourn either because of economic injustice, personal sorrow, um, social injustice. Those people have God's ear. 
There's a refrain in the Bible. If you, if you go back to the Pentateuch, you hear God's people in slavery crying out for 400 years, crying out to God. And God says through Moses, I have heard their cry. Those who suffer economic injustice, social injustice, physical pain and suffering, they have God's ear. But here's the thing. For those who have abundance, an abundance of emotional reserves, abundance of justice, abundance of favor, they're those who are called to comfort those who mourn. It says, blessed are they who mourn because they shall be comforted. And so those who have more should comfort those who don't. When you step into those places, love those who are bankrupt in certain places. And here's what struck me, and a little personally it struck me, is what convicts me, and I think she convicts the church, is as we study this, God's blessing a group of people who I think often other people choose to avoid. Right? God is saying people who are emotionally bankrupt people who are financially broken and poor, people who are oppressed, those are often the people that people who are better off and well off want to avoid. Right? I'm just saying because emotionally bankrupt people can be exhausting, right? I mean, it's really hard to fix emotionally bankrupt people. You can't really. You can be present. You can pray. You can encourage. But sometimes brokenness is so deep that you just... It's not going to go anywhere. It might not lead to the best places, but long-time years of faithful presence and prayer... Is what needs to, but that takes effort and energy, and it's hard work. So what do we do? We avoid bankrupt people. But God's literally saying, those broken people, mourning people, shall be blessed. And he's literally calling, that's the Christian ethic he's calling us to, is we should be the ones to comfort them. Then he says, blessed are the meek. Meekness is freedom from pretension, from pride. What I mean by that, if you've experienced the grace of God and you're saved by grace alone through faith alone, then you have no right to boast or to brag about who you are. You just don't. I mean, what did you do? Right? You got saved. You didn't climb your way out. You didn't work your way up. You didn't work your way up from the bottom. No, you got rescued. You got ransomed. You got pulled out of the muck and the mire. This eradicates boastfulness and pride. It lowers you and me. Meekness happens because you didn't do it, God did it, and God blessed, and God gifted. This should make us meek people. Now hear me when I say this, meek people, not weak people. Does that make sense? Meek people, not weak people. The word meek comes from the original language, was used to describe reigning in a stallion. It's the idea of a horse being controlled by a bit and a bridle. Horses choosing to submit to authority. That's meekness. It's power under constraint. Meekness is not a weakness. It is power under control. As the writer of Proverbs says, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit um, than he who captures a city. In contrast, the individual who is not gentle is likened to a city that is broken into and without walls. What meekness is, is, is knowing and lowering yourself, knowing the reality of your situation, knowing it's like a stallion, that you're strong, but you're controlled. You're humble. It's a right understanding of who you are, where you are, and what God's called you to be. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and they want more of it. I love the idea of an appetizer. Do you guys know what an appetizer is, right? When you go, I love appetizers. And appetizers are supposed to basically tease your appetite, right? That's what they're made for. They give you a little taste of something good that makes you hungrier for more. I love appetizers, by the way. They're just, it's, it's not good for me, but I do, right? But that's what it is, is that you taste something good and you want more. Blessed are you if you taste it and you hunger for more. 
And God is inexhaustible. He has so much more to give you. There's always more to be had. But the promise here is that we will be filled. But there's two things in that I want you to hear. One, if you're in a dry season, if you're walking through a desert and you're in a season where your prayers feel like they're not going anywhere, like you're not being fed, like nobody's there, you have, you're just kind of like just, just walking by faith because you know you're supposed to, you're not feeling it, can I tell you that that's okay and that's good? Never hate that. God is strengthening you. He's, he's strengthening you in your inner parts during this time. And God will pour into you. He will. He's faithful. You will be filled. Don't lose heart in that. He's not betrayed you. He's not forgotten you. He lives inside of you. Think about this. The Spirit of God dwells in you. Do you think he'll abandon himself? Does it make sense? He's already in you, so he's not going to abandon you because he's already in you. So you're not alone. He will fill you, even though when you're feeling you're in periods of darkness or dryness. Take heart in that. But here's the second thing. If you're hungry for more, if you're thirsty, eat. I mean, in life, if I'm hungry, if I'm famished, all I can think of doing is I got to get something to eat. I don't care what's going on in my life. Some people call it like, like my wife gets this way. I love my wife to death, but she, she, she gets hangry. You know what I'm talking about? Like, if she's, miss, she's one of those, like, clockwork. Like, I can miss a meal. I could probably miss a few meals. But I can miss a meal and be, like, be okay with that, right? My wife misses a meal, and she's like, oh, I'm so hungry. I got to eat something, right? And so she's like, I better get something to eat. I will eat. Guys, if you're hungry for God, if you're hungry for righteousness, if you're hungry for spiritual things, eat. I want you to eat. Open up the book. It's been given to you. The temple veil has been torn. The presence of God is available to you. Stop and eat. Dive into the word. Worship with abandon. Pray your heart out. Be in community. Be in fellowship. Eat. I don't understand why you don't. It's good. There's a banquet laid out for you. Eat. Christ's life, death, and resurrection has offered it up to you. The table is open. There's a banqueting feast. The king has said, come and eat and feast with me. He's given you all you need. My people, eat. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be filled. And then the next part of the Beatitudes, verse, starting in verse 7, says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This idea of being blessed are the merciful. When we talk about mercy, we're talking, Matt Chandler says, about exhibiting compassion for the unfortunate as an ethical act of worship. This is what Matt Chandler says again. It's about exhibiting compassion for the unfortunate as an ethical act of worship. This language is rooted yet again in the book of Isaiah. There's this ethical component to worship that is tied to being pure of heart. And what we see here is mercy, it's compassion extended to others as an ethical practice of worship of God. Not just singing, but engaging. And then maybe, I'm hoping this will help, this idea of, of being a Christian. Right? There's this one thing called orthodoxy, which is right belief, right understanding, right thinking. Right? But then there's something called orthopraxy, which is right practice, right living. Right? And it's important that Jesus reserves his harshest judgment to those who have the right, not to those who have wrong belief, but for those who have right belief, but who do not have right practice. Let me say that again. Jesus reserves his harshest judgment, his harshest critique to those who profess to know, who state the right things, seem to know the right things, but are not doing it. Right? If you want to watch 
God, um, like see what, what like see what He's about. Is that you see them? They, they should shudder when they think of believing the right things and not knowing the right things. So here's the deal: even demons believe what is true about God, and they shudder. We need to not be people who just know the right things. We need to do the right things. Orthopraxis should match our orthodoxy. It is right belief, which is important, that leads to right practice. So we need right belief. Don't get me wrong. I am not going to say that we don't, but it's fruitfulness and practice that shows that you have right belief. Are you showing mercy? Are you being merciful? As an act of worship, are you being compassionate? Are you extending compassion to others? Then he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Those who help with the unfortunate, with honesty, sincerity, integrity, truly worship God. And blessed are they are the pure in heart. They see God. I want a pure heart. I'm going to be honest with you guys. I tend to be skeptical and cynical. And I always have to run things through a grid. And not the grid of the Bible, but my own bent and prejudices. I choose to think about myself first and see ulterior motives behind every action and decision. My heart is bent and twisted. But I crave, I desire, a pure heart that has earnest desire to see God. They know that he fulfills all needs and desires. And guys, I want you to understand this. Yes, all of our hearts are broken. We all have fallen under sin nature. But what he means here in pure in heart is what found elsewhere in the Bible. The pure in heart are the ones who seek after God. Not the ones who are perfect. Not the ones who are like, oh, do not lack sin. Not whose hearts are pure but the ones who are, are, are clean and completely without sin, but the ones whose hearts are purely seeking after God, whose motivations are to know God more. Then he talks about peacemakers. And guys, I'm going to be honest, I want to focus a little more about this because this is something that our world, in our world right now, in our culture, in our climate, in our time, we seem to really struggle with. Am I right? See that we cannot do this, but I believe by the power of the Holy Spirit that we're called to this and we can live as peacemakers. God, guys, our people, we as people should understand and experience a profound peace because we're known and because we're loved, because we know where we're going, we know whose we are. This peace should settle our hearts into our dwellings, into our communities, in our houses, in our families, and should live can be expressed outward as we live as citizens of this new kingdom. Guys, the biggest proponents of peace in the world are the ones who experience peace back home. I want to explain that. What I mean by that is if you are an ambassador, if you're a diplomat, and you know back home, your home country, wherever you're from, is full of peace and justice, then you can be a, the biggest proponent and the biggest spreader of that peace because you know your home is all about that. That's our home, home of peace and reconciliation. But here's what I want us to do. I want us, by the grace of God and by the power of the Spirit, to refuse to participate in the violent polarization of our day. Guys, I'm just going to dive into it. I'm just going to say it. This is going to be hard for a lot of you to hear, but I'm just going to say it. As hard as it is for many of you to believe, there are Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, fully surrendered men and women who are Democrats and as hard as it is for you to believe that there are Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, seriously biblical people who are Republicans. I know. Weird concept, isn't it, for some of you to grasp? We live in an imperfect two-party system that makes us divide into only two groups, that polarizes us, but it doesn't have to. Because our main identifying group as followers of Jesus should be that we are kingdom citizens. 
And following the lamb, following Jesus is so much more important than following any political party, any other political agenda. And so here's what I'm doing. I'm not asking all of us to agree on every political topic there is out there. Not at all. I'm not asking us for all to agree. That's not unity. What I'm asking is that you take this command to seriously seek peace and to seek to understand the position of another rather than characterizing another party and putting on blast on your Facebook page to other people. I get it. Some of you out here thinking, how could anyone say or think like these other people? And you don't have to completely get it. This is where grace and mercy comes in. Instead, you can think, okay, I don't understand where you're coming from, but you seem to love the word of God. You seem to love Jesus. Okay, good. We're part of the same community of faith. So now help me to understand. Help me to see things the way you do. And please, will you also hear me? How much better is that? How much better is that? You come with humility because you have meekness. Remember that word meekness? And you seek to understand, and then when you understand, if you disagree, you can disagree charitably while showing love based on Christ's oneness in our midst. We have to stop attacking one another unless you just think you know everything and you have nothing to learn. Guys, most of you, not most of you, some of you, guys, I'll say this. I think you at Waypoint Church, guys, I love you guys. I'm not hard, as hard on you guys as kind of the larger supposed Christian kind of voice out there. But there's some amongst us, amongst the people of God, who, who literally post and act like they know everything and there's nothing they can be taught. And they attack each other with such vitriol, such anger. Can we not acknowledge that this person is made in the image of God, that they are brother and sister? It has to stop. Don't give in to it. Because if we don't give in to it, the Bible says that, we'll, that they'll see that we're the sons of God. That's what happens when you're a peacemaker. They shall be called the sons of God. Do you hear that? What that means, the sons of God united, a family, children. I don't know about you guys, but when I see movies or hear stories about families fighting each other and hating each other over stuff like inheritance, it breaks my heart, and I don't get it. My sister and I are not perfect in any way, any shape or form. I guarantee you I'm probably the most overbearing, difficult big brother a person could ever want. My sister will say amen to that. But I'll tell you this, I would do anything for my sister. I would do anything for her. I love her so much. And she would do anything for me. And I know, I know this, and we've, we've been this way for some time. I'll lift her up as much as I possibly can, and I'll know she'll do the same for me. She's my family. Guys, can we not do that as a church family? Can we listen and disagree? Can we love and forgive? Can we be humble learners? Can we hear each other hurts? Can we love each other and hear each other's frustrations and try to understand each other? Think about how discombobulating this would be in this time for other people, right? In this time of crazy polarization, in this time of anger and agenda seeking, if we, if we did this, if we loved in this way, we're united in this way, we're patient in this way, humble in this way, think of what the world would see. They would see the children of God. They would see the children of God. They would see a kingdom that's reordered differently. They would see the kingdom of heaven. Why are you not peacemakers? And I get, I'm grateful that you're passionate. I'm never going to ask you to dial back passion. 
especially on important issues. I want you to be passionate, but can I ask you this question? Can you be just as passionate to Jesus? I mean, it's funny that we can get all worked up about politics, but we really don't get off on that worked up about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I'm not trying to shame you guys. Please hear me that. I'm not. Because I'll be honest with you, this is a, a critique to me. I can get worked up about college football or worked about other things too. But I was taking so much energy and passion and, and emotional um, like capital is spent on blogs and posts and statements. And I'm asking you can, you, can we not seek that much passion to know Jesus and glorify him? I'm pleading with you not to participate the way the world participates, but be children of God. To understand another, love one another, and disagree charitably. I'm not under any illusion that we're going to always agree on everything. I'm not asking you to. There's so many pastors who I respect and love. They're smarter than me, better than me, ten times better people than I'll ever be. But I disagree with them radically. Where they come from, they're from different philosophies, different universe from where I come from. But they're my brothers and they're my sisters and I'm going to love them and I'm not going to slander them. Don't give yourself over to issues. Be peacemakers. Okay, that's my rant. I'll get off that one. The persecuted, for righteousness' sake. Bless you when you're persecuted, reviled, or when evil is spoken of you. Guys, can I tell you this? It's a new idea that Christians are not going to be persecuted in their culture and society. That we shouldn't be. That we should be culturally accepted. That's a new modern American idea. That is not our history for the majority of the time that people have been Christians. The majority of the time that people have been Christians and followers of God, we've been arrested, killed, fed to lions, sawed in two, boiled alive, put in prison. We had our stuff looted. We had our houses burned down. It's a new idea that you and I will be able to be cool enough and argue well enough to be accepted by men and women in our culture. In fact, Jesus goes as far as to say that, honestly, if everybody speaks well of you, I might look, you might want to question that a little bit. We should expect to be misunderstood, to be peculiar, to be lied about, even falsely accused. People shun and mock different. That's what they do. And my people, we should be different. Our lives should not make sense, full and complete sense to other people outside of the gospel. Can I tell you this, people? This is something I want to say to me. This is not just to you, but my people, please hear me. Too many of our lives look just the same as the world, except you go to church on Sunday. Do you hear that? Too many of our lives look just the same. We have the same goals, the same visions, the same way we do everything. Too many of our lives look just the same, except we go to church on Sunday. And that is not the way it should be. We should stand out. We should smell different. We should look different. We should act different. We should be different. Our lives should not make sense. But too many of us in America... That's part of the problem of what we have right now, right, in the world, is that we can't tell the difference. We just can't. We should be persecuted. We should look different. By the way, I'll tell you this. It's not often the outside world's criticisms and lies that, that hurt us the most. It's from those inside the church that do the most damage to our hearts, isn't it? 
my people, these beatitudes, these blessings, these graces are things that only God can implant in you. We can't do these things on our own. I'm not here to give this message saying, you should feel guilty right now, every one of you. No, this is comfort, my people. This is blessing, my people. This is what I want you to understand. This Christ not giving you a list of things to do. The Lord is saying, this is what my children are like. They're poor in spirit, but in that poverty, they have the kingdom of heaven. They mourn over sin, and in that mourning, they are comforted. They are meek, but in, that we- in their meekness, they have the world. It's the law of indirection. If you seek him, all these things will be added onto you. This is our inheritance. This is our blessedness. We have him. So seek him. Seek him, my people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this new kingdom you've ushered in that you inaugurated, Jesus. God, that as you came upon the mountain like Moses, that you, you showed us the, the call, the, the identity, the markers of what a citizen of this kingdom looks like. God, it is beautiful. It flips the world upside down. It's different. God, may we be different people. God, may we be different people. May we live in such a manner that flips this world upside down. May we live in such a way, God, that people see that we are the family, that we are the children of God. God, make us poor in spirit and meek. God, make us seek righteousness, hunger and thirst for it. Make us peacemakers. Make us show mercy, God. Let that be who we are because of the work of your spirit in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.